So we are in 1 John. I'm going to take a fast recap. Not quite halfway through chapter 5 is where we stopped last time. And one of the things that I want to talk about, you know, to get a run into chapter 5, is you remember we started off talking about the fact that this letter is apparently written in response to some kind of heresy. And we sort of speculated on what heresy it might be. Obviously a heresy concerning the person of Yeshua. And as I said earlier, there's sort of three basic flavors of who Yeshua is. Flavor number one is the Orthodox Christian perspective that he is both God and man, fully human and fully divine, which is what I believe. Option number two is that he's really just an incarnate angel. And we see that all over the Old Testament, where a human encounters somebody, and they talk, or they ask questions, or all that sort of stuff. And somewhere during the conversation, the human realizes he is not dealing with another human. And very often, the other being will do things like call down fire from heaven and go up into the sky and do something miraculous. But certainly the idea in the Old Testament that happens a number of times is you have these angelic beings who walk among us and look just like us, except that they're not us. So option number two for who Yeshua is, is he's one of those. He walked among us, looked just like one of us, but he wasn't really. He was an angelic being who was incarnate for purposes of ministry and so forth. And then the third one is that Yeshua was a man and was taken over by the Holy Spirit at his baptism. That may be where it happens. And then the Holy Spirit bugged out as he was on the cross. So he was born a man, died a man, and in between he was under the control of the Holy Spirit who did all the miracles and stuff. So we're not completely sure which one of these heresies John is writing against, although we may get a clue tonight during chapter 5 because he does talk about that. Now, the layout of the book starts off in chapter 1 and says that the blood cleanses us of all sin and then goes into chapter 2 and he says, oh, by the way, don't sin. And he defines sin as not following Torah. So he says, keep his commandments and if you do keep his commandments and you walk in his commandments and you desire to keep in his commandments, by that you know that you know it. That's a, an indicator, if you will, that you do know him is that you have this desire to keep his commandments. And then he uh, says no new commandment, just Torah. And then he goes into love your brother. And love your brother is going to come in and out throughout the rest of the letter. Don't love the world because the world is passing away. And then the Antichrist is coming slash has come. And we talked about this in some detail. Most evangelicals look at the Antichrist as a singular person. John does not seem to treat him that way. John seems to treat it as, yes, he is a person, but he is also a spirit that people follow, if you will. And it causes them to say things about Messiah that are not true. And he calls anybody who says things about the Messiah that are not true the Antichrist, not as in 
the Antichrist, end times, big guy at the end of the world, but simply someone who is against Christ. His intent is to deceive and to abide with God by following his commandments is your way of fighting that deception. And then when you do abide in him, you have confidence that when he returns, you need not fear because he has left you to do things in this world. If you're abiding with him and doing the stuff that he told you to do, you don't need to fear his return because you're going to be one of the servants who he will commend for taking care of the place while he was gone. Chapter 3, he talks about becoming children of God or the fact that we are children of God. And in that, what we are going to be is not yet revealed. And there he's either talking about the second coming or he's talking about the resurrection. Talks about habitual sin and that people who follow God don't sin habitually. And habitual sin is described as lawlessness. In other words, he keeps coming back to Torah. And the children of God are not lawless. And then we're coming back to love your brother at the end of chapter 3. And he equates hating your brother with murder. And you remember we talked when we went through that, that murder is simply an extreme form of looking at somebody else and saying, my world would be just a whole lot better if that person didn't exist. The extreme form of that is you kill the other person. A milder form of the same spirit is you hate your brother and drive him away from you. In other words, it, my life would be better if my brother was not anywhere around me. My life would be much better if I could take the little snot and sell him into Egypt or whatever the modern equivalent is. So what he's again saying here is failure to love your brother is of the same category, although not as severe as murder. Talks about loving in deed and in truth. And we talked about what that meant. Truth did not mean then what it means today. Today, truth is a word exercise. So if you can take some words and string them together and all of the pattern of your words follows logically, you are said to have arrived at truth. That's not the biblical way. The biblical way is to observe something and see if its behavior matches what you would expect of someone of that class. And we use the example of a true man. A true man is male, he's protective, he can be trusted, and all the attributes that used to be called the male virtues, he exhibits those attributes. Hence, he is a true man. Doesn't have anything to do with how well he can string words together. At the end of chapter 3, he says that the Spirit testifies that he abides in us and we in him. And then from there he goes to test the spirits. So not every spirit is of God. There are spirits out there that are evil. And he tells you how you test them. And one way that you test them is to see if they testify that Yeshua is the Son of God who came in the flesh. If they say anything else, they're not the spirit that you want to follow. And in fact, they are then the spirit of Antichrist. And we talked about various spirits a time or two ago. You've got the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. You've got unclean spirits. You've got the spirit of a human. Each one of you has a spirit. And 
when he talks about Antichrist here, he is not talking about Antichrist, capital letters, the guy that shows up at the end times. What he's talking about is human beings who speak against John's teaching and John's understanding of Yeshua's. And he calls them the spirit of Antichrist. And then he says, love God and abide in him and love your brother. And he ends in chapter 4 by saying, uh, folks, you say you love God. You've never seen God. So if you can't love your brother who you have seen, what makes you think you can love God who you haven't seen? That's how he ends chapter 4. That brings us up to chapter 5. Everyone who believes that Yeshua is the Messiah has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whomever has been born of him. We're back to love God, love your neighbor. So what he's saying is, if you have been born of God, you love the Father, and you also love the brethren, who are also born of him. By the way, this particular statement is not, love everything that walks on two feet. He's specifically talking here about believers. Verse 2. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. We're back to obedience. And that's been a theme all the way through here, that you know that you abide in God by the fact that you want to keep his commandments. And by the way, modern Christianity gets this confused. What modern Christianity would say, we're all God's children. It's not what the Bible says. What the Bible says is we all have the ability to become children of God. It says it in Hebrews. It says Yeshua is the Son of God. Yeshua is the Son of Adam. Because Yeshua is the Son of Adam, He is our brother. Because we are also sons of Adam. And because He is our brother, He then gave us the ability to become children of God. So the idea that everyone who gets born into this world is a child of God is not biblical. What is biblical is everyone who is born into this world is born in the image of God. All humans are made in the image of God. In Genesis 1 and 2, you have Adam, first human, who is created in the image of God. And when I say in the image of God, what I believe that means is he is built in the same way that God himself is. So we all have a body, a soul, and a spirit. God has a body, a soul, and a spirit. Yeshua, the Holy Spirit, and God the Father. So God, as defined in Scripture, is... I struggle with saying this because he's not made. He's not a created or made being. He is a being in three parts. We are also beings in three parts. So when it says we're in the image of God, what I take that to mean is we are structured the same way that God is. My dear wife doesn't look anything like me. So if I'm in the image of God, she's got a problem. And so the point here is it's not that we all look like God. It is we are all beings who are created using the same pattern that God is. So now I'm in Genesis 5. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. That's what we just talked about. 
Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered his son in his own likeness, after his image, and named him Seth. So Adam is created in the image of God. Seth and everybody downstream from that are in the image of Adam. And Grant, when he gave a sermon several weeks ago, gave a very nice explanation of what that means. I, I liked it very much. He described fallen humanity as having an autocorrect feature. You know, when you're typing in on your phone, your phone tries to guess what you're trying to say, and it will block words in for you to match what it thinks you're trying to say. And there are whole websites of conversation streams where autocorrect has just messed everybody up. Typically it's something that somebody writes to his mother. So the point is, after the fall, humanity has an autocorrect feature that wasn't designed into us. And that autocorrect feature, we hear the word of God, but we do an autocorrect. And we interpret the word of God according to what we want it to mean as opposed to what it says. And so when the children of Adam are made in Adam's image, they are after the fall, not previous to the fall. Now, they are still beings in three-part, and they are still in the image of God. They've just got some stuff added on that God didn't put there. So now, back to 1 John, where 1 John is talking about loving the brethren or the children of God. Well, what Messiah did by his death, burial, and resurrection is gave us the ability to become children of God. Everybody is made in the image of God, but not everyone is a child of God. Two different concepts. So, verse 3, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. And when we become children of God, instead of in the image of Adam, you get his Holy Spirit, and one of the things having his spirit does is makes his commandments seem natural because they are natural to him because he gave them to us. I don't think God was up there really breaking a sweat trying to figure out, all right, now what are the commandments going to be for these folks? I think they just flowed because it's part of him. And so if you are in the image of God or a child of God, then the commandments of God should be natural to you and not burdensome. And notice that they are the commandments of God, not the commandments of Yeshua. But much of the Sunday church will say, I follow the commandments of Yeshua. I don't want anything to do with that old Moses law. This is not talking about the commandments of Yeshua. This is talking about the commandments of God as given to Moses. Verse 4, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Yeshua is the Son of God? And again, we've been through that riff that when you have the ability to become a child of God, then there are things that go with that to include Yeshua being your elder brother in a sense. Verse 6. Now here we're going to talk about one of the heresies without mentioning it directly. This is he who came by water and blood, Yeshua Messiah. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, 
the Spirit, and the water, and the blood. These three agree. Now, one of the commentaries I was reading says what this is talking about is the baptism of Yeshua. Because you remember at his baptism, he goes down into the water, the Holy Spirit descends like a dove, so you have the Spirit and the water, and then the blood, I would assume, is a crucifixion. And that's perfectly good explanation. And the commentary I read said that this is to go against the heresy of some guy that believed Yeshua was nothing but a man who received the Spirit of God at his baptism and lost it on the cross, was born a man, died a man, in between he was run by the Spirit, and that's a heresy. So what the commentary I was reading says is that this goes against that heresy. I can also see it as doing something else. I can see that it is testimony that Yeshua is human. Because when someone is born, you get a flush of water as the mother's water breaks. And then this kid comes out, a bloody mess. So one of the things that's very important is that Yeshua is human. And we've talked about that in the past because God gave dominion over the place to humans. So for Yeshua to take dominion, he's got to be human in order for God's plan to be consistent. You know, God could have done anything he wanted, but that's how he did it. It's his policy, not mine. We're in charge. So for Yeshua then to be eligible to take the deed to the world, he has to be fully human. So in that sense, you could also look at this as against the heresy that Yeshua is simply an incarnate angel. And we don't know for sure which heresy it's against. And this says not by water only, but by water and blood. So water only would be he's just human. Water and blood could refer to human and then his blood shed being sufficient to cover sin. And then, of course, the Spirit testifying to both. So as I say, there's all sorts of symbology going on in here, and it isn't completely clear to me which symbol John is intending to use. So verse 9, If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God, that he is born concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. And again, that could be at the transfiguration, because God said, this is my beloved son, listen to him. So what John is saying is, we got the testimony of God about this guy, Yeshua. If you don't believe the testimony of God, you don't believe God. And whoever does believe in the Son of God has that testimony within himself. Verse 11, and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. So verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So what we're doing is obviously encouraging the brethren. You told them this sometime in the past and you've got somebody who has come through fuzzing up what John said the first time. So after all of this, what he's done is he's come back and he is reassuring them that A, what he told them the first time is true, 
and B, that those who are faithful to God, follow the Messiah, keep the commandments, love their brother, all the stuff that he had in this letter, have eternal life. One of the things that the Sunday church is really good at is going after this with a Greek mind. So remember I told you that if you string the words together and you check all the logical boxes, then your results are true. This is a letter addressing a specific subject. And what he's talking to are believers. What he's doing is he's explaining to believers in the context of being led astray by heresy. Now, what I don't believe is he is saying something about the state of Jews who are not messianic. That isn't the subject of the letter. So to take a letter that is on one subject and then flip out over to here and pick up a completely different subject and say because he says this this way, then over here that means that all Jews are going to hell. I don't believe that's a sound interpretation of the letter. Verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. In other words, encouragement and reassurance, if you will, that these people who have been harassing you are incorrect. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. Now, what that does not say is everything you ask for he's going to give you. What it says is, if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And then he will, in fact, make our request effective because it's according to his will. Now, what the heck is the purpose of that? In other words, if it's his will, what the heck is the purpose of that you've got to pray in order to have his will come into being? Because a man needs to speak it. Remember we said it's God's policy that he does things on earth through men. So what this says is it takes a man, human, man or woman, it takes a man to speak the will of God in order for the will of God to be made manifest on the earth. That's what the prophets did. That's what Moses did. That's what Yeshua can now do because he also is a man. And his words are now effective on the earth just like yours are. But this passage of scripture says not that whatever you ask for you get. It doesn't say that at all. It says when you think you know what God's will is in a specific situation, you need to speak it out in prayer in order for God's will to become manifest in that situation. Verse 16, If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. Torah 101. So it's saying a couple of things. And by the way, there are lots and lots of Sunday preachers that I have heard that say sin leads to death, everybody's a sinner there, everybody is condemned to death. Not all sin leads to death. 
John is saying that here. And if you read the Torah, there are a litany of sins that do not take the death penalty. When you look at somebody, you can say, that behavior is worse than this behavior. They're both wrong, but that's worse than this. You don't think God can figure that out? Of course he can. So what he's done is he's laid out punishment for various sins in the Torah, some of which lead to death. In other words, murder, there's nothing to atone for. it. You get stoned, theoretically. So there are sins that are not fatal, and that's what John is saying here. And the other thing he's saying is if you observe your brother committing a sin that is not fatal, pray for it. If you observe your brother committing a sin that is fatal, let the law take its course. Verse 18, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. That's a reprise of chapter 3. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. Take this in context of what we just read about praying for someone who's a sinner. Remember it says, if you see your brother committing a sin that does not lead to death, pray for him. And here it says, we know that everyone who is born of God does not keep on sinning. But that doesn't say you don't sin, it's just that you're not wicked. But he who was born of God protects him, which is to say the one who prayed for him. And the evil one does not touch him. Go back to verse 16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. Then down here below, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him. The one who prayed for him protects him, and the evil one does not touch it. The comments were that he who was born of God refers to Yeshua protecting him. That isn't the sense of the grammar, at least in my translation. I'm not arguing with it being Yeshua that protects him, but the idea that it's Yeshua protecting him here is a translator's artifact, which may be correct. Verse 19, we know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So again, we know that we are from God, he who was born of God, it all feels like believers to me. So we know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And uh, the idea here in all of this, starting back in verse 13, is the power of a believer's words. Remember it started off saying, if you pray anything according to his will, it's going to happen. And furthermore, if you see your brother sinning, you can pray for him and that will be effective. And your prayers then will be effective against the evil one because you're praying in accordance with the will of God. And once a man says something, God then is free to act and make those words become powerful. This whole thing is a riff on believers in prayer, I think. feels that way to me. Verse 20, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. Now we're talking about the Son of God, Yeshua. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Yeshua Messiah. He is the true God in eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols.
Now, why on earth did he throw that in, do you wonder? And I will tell you why I think he threw it in. This is genealogy. This whole thing, starting in verse 13, toward the end of the chapter, has been talking about the power of a believer's words. And the temptation of idolatry is to exercise power in the world that God does not want you to have. So what an idol does is it serves as someone between you and the power of God that will give you something that you don't think you can get directly from God. And the reason for that is because idols, I have to say this carefully, are made in the image of the worshiper. In other words, an idol is something we make in our own image because there are things that we want supernaturally and everybody wants different things. So you have idols that are fertility symbols. You have idols that are wealth symbols. You have idols that are all sorts of different symbols because you get to pick and choose your gods. Okay, this is what I want to have happen, so I'll go to this god that handles lust and love, Aphrodite or or one of those gods, and I'll ask for the babe I want. Oh, I need to do well in my job, so I'll go to Mercury, who is the god of trade, and I'll sacrifice to him so my business will go well. we got a battle coming up, so I'll go to Mars, who's the god of war, and we'll pray to him because we need help in the battle. So what you do is you can pick and choose your gods to exercise supernatural power over the world. And God says, don't do that. And what John has been talking about here is the power of a believer's words in the world. That's been the subject of this whole riff we've just been on. The power of your words when you pray according to the will of God. Well, there's another way to get your will done. You can go to one of these idols. And you can sacrifice to one of these idols. And you can get supernatural stuff that way. So what John has been saying is, this is the way to do it. Don't do it that way. And that's why I think that little sort of tag on the end, keep away from idols. I think that's why that's there. I've really enjoyed this study. I hope you all have. I think it's been really good. Just a whole bunch of stuff in there. And a couple of them I made a real hash of, but this has been a good book. So what we'll do next week, God willing, is we'll do second and third John, which are considerably shorter and more succinct. And the stuff we have covered here in first John will apply to quite a bit of what's going on in 2nd and 3rd John. So a lot of the background we've laid here in 1st John so that we can just sort of refer to it when we get to the other two books.